Good morning, Grace Point. How are you doing this morning? Now, this is response time, okay? So, good morning. All right. Well, my name is Randy Miller. I am the pastor of discipleship at Northwood Church in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, before you tune me out totally, I want you to understand in Northwest Arkansas, I am a product of Northwest Arkansas. I grew up in Lowell. And uh, I am in Texas just because there's lots of heathen people there. And uh, they needed somebody from Arkansas to actually go and uh, to be there. I've been there for almost 19 years as a pastor of discipleship at Northwood Church. And so greetings in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from another sister church who has a like heart and a like mind to yours. I've had a lot of dealings with Grace Point Church since its inception and even before. I've known your pastor for 22 years, and uh, we were actually college roommates. And so there's some things I want to tell you about Mike in just a minute, but there are also many other things that I share in common with Grace Point Church, and John and Kay Rogers are, are one of those. I've only had four auto accidents in my lifetime. Three of those involved John Rogers, and... Um, so as a result of that, I decided that one of us had to move, and uh, it was going to be me. And I want you to know that John was not at fault in any of the three times that he was involved with an auto accident with me. I'd hit him twice, same car, once in the front, once in the back, two different auto accidents. And then uh, we were on our way to Kansas City one time and hit some ice and uh, spun around, I don't know, something like 15, maybe 100 times, ministerially speaking. But... Um, John was involved in all of those. Kay was uh, in my small group as I led that in, uh, in college as she was a freshman. And Mike and Lori McDaniel were also in that very same small group that I led as a sophomore in college at Southwest Baptist University. When I was a senior, Mike and I were roommates. And um, did you guys know that your illustrious pastor uh, spent an afternoon in the Bolivar jail in Bolivar, Missouri. Did you, has he ever told you this story? Well, you see, as I told him this week that I was going to be telling this story, because I don't want to shock him, um, he conveniently forgot that this, actually, this story actually happened. But as we were there in our apartment one night, a snowstorm developed, and um, we were right on campus, or right off campus. We were right across from the girls' dorm, and there was a street that separated us. And as the snow began to build up on the roadway. Obviously, no cars were going to pass that particular evening. So a bunch of students decided they would have a huge snowball fight right outside our apartment. And evidently, some male students decided they would grab some snowballs and put rocks in them and throw them at windows and break those windows and then proceed to go right behind Mike and I's apartment and flee that way as the police evidently showed up. All the police knew is that two guys who were fairly tall um, escaped back behind our apartment. And the next day we get a knock on the door that says, we'd, we'd like for you guys to come down for some questioning at the Bolivar Police Department. So Mike and I, both being ministerial students, future pastors, both of us, go down to the Bolivar jail, looking at each other. We were both scared to death. I don't think either one of us had ever seen the inside of a jail. Well, maybe Mike had. I really don't know much about Mike before he was uh, around 19 or so. But, nevertheless, we go to, jail, go to the jail, we are, go to the police department, and actually answer all their questions. Effectively, I guess, they didn't hold us. Then we go back to campus. As we go back to campus, people thought it was absolutely hilarious. 
They said if there were two people that they would vote least likely to ever be in the Bolivar Jail, it would be Mike McDaniel and myself. So I want you to know that your pastor has been in jail before, and so don't ever let him tell you that it's not true. Leodra and, and Daniel Franklin also, uh, I have a connection with them. As Mike called me several years ago and asked me, hey, we need a great children's pastor. Do you know somebody? Well, Leodra's parents, the McKays, go to my church in, uh, in Fort Worth. They're in Keller, Texas, just north of Fort Worth. And so I said, I think I have the lady for you. And so I've got lots of connections here at Grace Point Church. I want you to know that since your very inception, I have prayed for you. I've been a pastor in, in Fort Worth these last 19 years. What I do at our church is um, all of our small groups. We have 175 small groups spread uh, throughout the community. And uh, we didn't have that when we started, but, uh, but over these 19 years, the church has grown. But we share a heart that is a heart for the world. And that heart for the world is, as I have discovered over the many years, that a lot of churches, we think, would all have a heart for the world. And we talk about great things that we have a heart for the world, but the question is, what do we really do? The message that I have for you this morning is called the spiritual formula of hope. Now then, as we talk about that, this is not a normal New Year's first sermon out of the box in a New Year type of message. It's not necessarily about all the New Year's resolutions and things that you could do and potentially have in your life. But the message that I want to bring to you today is about the understanding of what the church is to be and how we are to be an active participant in God's kingdom. Do you realize that you and I are in God's kingdom? Jesus Christ set it in motion. Remember what Jesus said, I come to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And when Jesus said He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God started right then and there. For many of us, when we think of God's kingdom, we often think of God's kingdom as something that's coming. It's something that will come when Jesus Christ returns. That's not true. What's true is that God's kingdom has already started. And He's invited you and I to be a participant in it. But unfortunately, many churches across the country haven't clued into that. They've made church about themselves. They've said church is really about us, and it's about what we learn and how we grow and even how we reach our community. I want you to remember what Acts 1.8 says. Do you remember? It says, You will see, receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you were to go to most churches in America and quite a few churches around the world, although the rest of the world, the churches that I've seen, seem to get this better than we do, they would say that that verse says, we go to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. We tend to make our churches about us. We tend to say we want our messages to be for us. We want our things to be for us. We want our programs to be for us. We want to have everything boxed and housed right here. We want everything to be convenient. And then we will reach our community. And then if we do all of the things that we need to do to reach our community, then we'll reach our nation. And as we do all the things that we need to reach our nation, then we will use a few resources on the world. 
That is not what the passage says. The passage says Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You have a mission team in, ba- in Mali right now. Okay? And as you're in Mali, I almost said Bali because I was in Bali, not just a couple of weeks ago. But you have a mission team in Mali right now. Grace Point understands the ends of the earth. What we've discovered at this, at Northwood and at Grace Point, is that when you reach to the world, the most natural thing to happen is that you come and you reach back home. I'll never forget going on mission trips as a student and going and sharing my faith somewhere else, and it seemed easy. But it seemed awfully hard to come back home and share with my next-door neighbor. But when you go to the world and you see the world and you reach the world, the most natural thing is for for us to bring it back home and to see God reach not only northwest Arkansas, not only Texas, not only United States, but different continents and literally the whole world. You are a participant in God's kingdom. But as you and I are are participants in God's kingdom, the question is, how do we continue to grow in that? And to be able to grow in that, We need hope. We need hope. As we've been talking a lot, a lot of people seem to be talking about this word hope. I guess especially the new year, especially President-elect Obama has talked about the hope of a new campaign and of a new America. Right now, President-elect Obama is calling people to come out of their normal citizenry and to be a part of his cabinet. When he calls them out, what he does is he calls them to be, as citizens, now a part of the process of ruling the nation. And what Jesus Christ has called you and I to do is that same very thing. He has called us out to be part of His cabinet, His ambassadors, His people in the world, to take this message that He's given us of hope, And take it to the rest of the world. But the question for us is, do we live like a people of hope? As part of my own journey and some very difficult things that I have gone through over the past year, I'll share a little bit more later. But as part of my own journey, God gave me this passage. And I must have read this passage literally hundreds of times over my life with Christ since I was nine years old. But as I read this passage over this past few months, God gave me something brand new in it. And it comes from Romans chapter 5. So I want to encourage you to turn there in your Bibles or you can read it on the screen if you'd like. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now typically we focus on verses 1 through 3. And we're going to read those because it talks about what the main crux of Romans is, as Paul writes to this church in Rome, he writes to them about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. We have in Romans what Martin Luther called the greatest understanding of doctrine of any passage or any book in the Bible. And so we understand doctrine through this book of Romans. But I want us to focus on this idea of hope. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And I want you to focus on that. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Now then, the spiritual formula of hope. Now, there's not many formulas in Scripture, I will tell you that. And to be quite honest with you, I'm pretty leery of spiritual speakers who say that there are formulas in Scripture, who come to us and say, hey, if you'll just do these three easy steps, it'll be great. Your Christian life will go on without fail, without problem. If you'll just do these three easy steps. Well, there are no three easy steps to the Christian life. And actually, there is a formula, the spiritual formula of hope in this passage But there's nothing easy about it. We typically focus on the first few passages of this. And in this, we see what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, as he said, there is faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. Audience participation time. Ready? The greatest of these is love. All right? So here we see, first of all, he talks about faith. Faith secures Faith secures what we have in Jesus Christ. Then he talks about hope. Hope endures. Hope gives us that ability to be able to endure whatever God has for us to endure in this life. And then love. Love adheres. Love adheres our lives to each other and to our fellow humankind throughout the world. Faith secures Hope endures, but love adheres us. Love is really where the, the tire meets the street in our lives of how we do this. But what is this spiritual formula of hope? The first thing I want you to see is that hope is equal to the glory of God. Do you see what he says here? He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now when we see that, hope then equals The glory of God. What is the glory of God? We receive the glory of God when we worship. We see the glory of God when we serve Him. But hope is the glory of God. But for the church in Rome, they saw the equation that looked a little bit more like this. They saw that the glory of God was equal to heaven. Eternal hope. When many of us go through difficulties, the thing that we turn to is that our hope is the eventual, eternal glory with God. It is when Jesus rules and reigns, it's when we are in heaven. When we go through difficult times, as the church in Rome was going through, they believed that their hope was the glory of God eternal. Keep in mind, Christianity was illegal. They were being persecuted for their faith. And as Paul wrote to the Romans, he had never even seen them. As he wrote to them, They were a church that he did not know. He knew a few of the believers who were in Rome, but they were being persecuted for their faith. And as Paul wrote to them, when they heard the hope, they thought of the hope of the eventual 
glory of God. But what Paul wanted them to see was not only did it mean the hope, the eventual glory of God, but instead to see that the glory of God really equaled this, our participation in God's kingdom on earth. The first, glory of God equaling heaven, is an eternal hope. The second, the glory of God being our participation in God's kingdom, is an understanding that that is a living hope. You see, it's the living hope that we have to make it through 2009. The economy may be bad. People may be losing their jobs. You may have lost your job. Difficult times may be coming for us in the United States, or they may be here. But the hope that we have in the glory of God that He wants us to see is that we have a participation in God's kingdom. God has not called us to sit, soak, and sour. He has not called us to come and hear message after message after message and do nothing. God has called us to be the active body of Christ in the world, living out this eternal and living hope that He's given us. But then the question is this. How do we get to this equality or the understanding of God's glory being participation with Him in this thing we call the Christian life? Well, He gives us this formula. The first thing, remember what it says. He says that more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. You see, what Paul is saying is, hope is not just the eternal glory. Hope is also this living hope that we have with each other. That we are participants in God's kingdom. So what he says is this. Suffering with endurance. Whatever suffering is, and we're going to talk about that in great detail. Suffering with endurance equals godly character. When you and I go through any kind of suffering and we endure up under it, it produces God's character in our life. And when we have God's character, that is the living hope. You see, hope is not just about heaven. Hope is about how we live right here. We get to be participants. We are involved in God's kingdom. And if you're involved in God's kingdom, if you're taking in precious breath from this planet today, you are living hope. So suffering with endurance equals godly character. Just a few miles down the road from where I live is the U.S. Mint. It sits right off Highway 35 and right in Fort Worth, Texas. It's one of the U.S. Mints. And what they create there is coinage. And the way that they create that is they take a metal alloy and they heat it up and they take an imprint. Just over the last few years, they've been imprinting all the state quarters And as they take those imprints, they press them into that hot alloy metal. And they create an image. Now then, if the metal is not pure, if the metal is not heated up enough, 
it does not receive the image that is imprinted upon it. And that is the same thing for you and I. When we go through difficulty, when we go through suffering, God's image is imprinted upon us. And it is then and only then that we know that we are authentic. Now then, if you go through suffering and struggle, and let's say you, you want to even give up on your faith, does that mean you're not a believer? No. That's where the illustration ends. Even if your image is not a perfect image in your own life, a perfect representation, because not a single one of us is a perfect representation of Christ. But yet God sees only the perfect image of His Son because His image is imprinted upon our life. So when we go through suffering, we are proven authentic. We are proven true because Christ has been shown in your life and my life. But how do we do that? This character brings us hope in life, but how does it do that? Godly character is equal to hope, which is equal to participation in God's kingdom on earth. But it involves suffering. It involves difficulty. There's not many churches across the nation that are going to preach a gospel of suffering. In the United States, the gospel is of, it's not just about everybody else, it's really about me. And I shouldn't suffer, and I should be the most wealthy, and I should not lack for anything. And if you love God enough, you won't go through sickness, you won't go through illness, you won't go through hardship, you won't lose your job, you will be uh, promoted in the next, the next job opportunity that comes open. And sometimes those things do happen. But sometimes God calls us to go through difficult times. I've been to other places in the world. Many of you have been to other places in the world. And you realize that the church and the rest of the world doesn't live life like we live it in the United States. The church and the rest of the world goes through many hardships, many difficulties. And they understand this fact that suffering builds God's character when we live it through with endurance. But so many times we don't understand that. And we don't embrace the difficult times that we might go through. And that's what I want you to understand today, that part of hope, part of understanding that you are part of God's living hope is seeing the fact that suffering is a part of the equation. I would venture to say it is a necessary part of the equation. Now, this isn't your feel-good New Year's 2009 message now, is it? Because it's about suffering. It's about the fact that God desires us to know Himself more intimately than we know our own safety and our own security. At Northwood, we even call it body bag theology. The fact that God has called us to other places in the world. The Christian life is not about safety. It's not about security. But yet, for most of us, we sit on this side of the world and we look over there and say, that's for those who are called to do that. The last time I checked, the Great Commission was for all of us to go into all the world. You see, so often we make it about, do we do local 
or do we do something global? And for me, it's like both wings of the airplane. Last time I checked, how many of you just want the left wing of the airplane? Anybody? Anybody just want the right wing of the airplane? No. We want both. It's about reaching global and about reaching local. And it's about understanding that suffering is a part of that. But what is suffering for us? I want us to give, I want to give us a new view of suffering this morning. For most of us, we think of suffering maybe, as the early church would have thought about it, as being persecuted or suffering for a righteous sake. I was just recently in Indonesia, a church that's 88% Muslim, or a church, a country that's 88% Muslim. And I got to be a part there with a church called Abalov. Abalov is a church of 20,000 people that meets in 35 different locations throughout the city and country of Indonesia, but around the city of Jakarta. Millions and millions of people, a church of 20,000 that is making an incredible impact on their community. While I was there, I met a church planter. And this church planter was in the slums of the city of Jakarta. Again, a country that's 88% Muslim. This man knew what it was like to face persecution. And for most of us, when we think about suffering, we think about suffering for Christ. But for most of us in the United States, we don't really get a lot of suffering for Christ. We might get made fun of by a neighbor. We might go to school and maybe a friend discovers that we're a Christian and they might make fun of us. But that's about the end of our persecution or our suffering for righteousness' sake unless we go to other places in the world. Paul reminded Timothy about this in 2 Timothy 2. He said, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, You can write your name in right there. He endured that for you and I, that they also may obtain the salvation that is Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Then in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. Will face suffering. So the question for you and I today is, where is hope? If hope comes to us through suffering, what is the suffering that you and I have endured? Some of you have endured this suffering through persecution, through difficulty, through hardship. Maybe you have a difficult employer or employee relationship at work, and that is made even more difficult because you are a person of faith. Maybe you have gone through that type of suffering. If so, know this. Jesus said it would come. Paul said it must come. If we are to be in the faith, we will endure persecution. Even for us in the United States, it may be coming again for us. So if it does, know that when you suffer that way and you endure under it, God's character is what's being built in your life. But that's not the only form of suffering that we experience. A second type of suffering that we experience is personal suffering. Personal suffering. 
And yet this is very different. If we receive religious persecution, it's kind of novel. It's kind of an interesting idea. It's kind of cool to be persecuted religiously or for our faith because then we can tie back to the understanding of our forefathers and those who went in faith before us, the martyrs for the faith. If we have a body bag theology and we go to unsecure places in the world and perhaps we were to lose our life, we would literally be worshipped here because people would say they gave their life for Christ. But when we go through personal suffering and hardship, it's not as cool. It's not as neat. It's not as avant-garde. It's really difficult. But yet it's the same. When you go through suffering of losing a job, God says it's through those situations that I'm building your character. If you go through situations of losing a loved one, God is saying, understand that as you walk through these dark days, it is part of understanding that I am building your character. Personal suffering is one of the tools that God uses to imprint His character upon them, upon us. I want you to think of the godliest person you know. Okay? Do you have somebody in your mind right now? the godliest person that you know, chances are, as you think of that person, it's someone who's gone through great difficulty in their life. There's been something that has brought them close to their loving God, their living Creator, that has made them who they are in Christ. And it's been that suffering that they have endured and the godly character that's been produced. One of the godliest people that I know is my mom. She's 71 years old. And over the last six months, we've been battling cancer in her life. She's not here this morning. My dad is here with me. My wife and my two girls are here with me this morning. But my mom's been going through cancer. Now then, I've got to tell you, as a kid growing up in a great home, going to a great church, I was a graduate of Shiloh Christian High School and going to a great school, going to a great university, going to seminary, and I've been at a great church for 19 years. I have a fabulous wife. I have two wonderful daughters. I've got to tell you, there's not been a lot of personal suffering that I've experienced in my lifetime. And yet all the great men and women of faith that I knew had gone through great Hardship. It's almost as if I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know what I'm saying? I was almost saying, hey, my life is way too good. I know that there's going to be difficulty coming. Will I be ready for it? But what God wants to say to us today is, it may not be as cool as religious persecution and suffering, but when you go through personal suffering, when I've had to watch my mom go through cancer, struggling with it, And not being able to do a thing about it personally, that's been one of the hardest things for me. I'm a fixer, okay? I like to fix things. You give me a problem, I'll work on fixing it, okay? But when things are totally out of my control, I've got to be honest with you, I don't like that. I don't like it when things are out of my control. But it's those times 
And it's been during this time where God works in my heart and God continually develops His character within me when it is the most difficult. So the question I have for you this morning is this. What are the things and the difficulties that you've been going through? And how does God want to use that? Remember what Romans 8.28 says? It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Okay, do you hear that word, conformed to the image of His Son? That's not an easy, no problem free life. To be conformed to the image of of His Son means that we are pressed into His image. And one way that happens is through personal suffering. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He also glorified. When you go through difficulty, take a moment and say, what is God saying to me? And how does He want to use this? Even though He may not have orchestrated it, He has allowed it. And how does He want to use this moment of suffering in my life to make me more like His Son? So religious suffering, or suffering through persecution, suffering through the personal issues of our life, But there is a third area of suffering that I want us to talk about briefly. And that is choosing suffering for ourselves. Choosing suffering for ourselves. I've often wondered as I've looked at the church where I work, as you guys work in Mali, Northwood concentrates in Vietnam. And as I've made many trips to uh, North Vietnam and gone to Hanoi and north of Hanoi into the mountain highlands. And as we work through the open door, we work with the communistic government. And as we work there, I've often wondered, as I've seen religious persecution and persecution for faith, God, why do we not experience that? Why do I not experience that? How do I see the church in Vietnam, the church in China, the church literally all over the world exploding and growing with a type of disciple that I rarely see in the United States? Someone who's willing to live for their faith and die for their faith. Why do I not see that in the United States? And how could we begin to see that? We can begin to see that here, I believe, if we understand that we can choose suffering for ourselves. What does it look like? Jesus talked about it in Luke 9.23. He said, Then He said to them all, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. What Jesus said was, we were called to deny ourselves, to choose suffering, to take the things that we would really like to do and to do something a little bit different. Instead of choosing sin that would be so easy for us to do, instead choosing righteousness. How do we do that? I believe it's through spiritual disciplines and discipleship in our life. So what does that look like? First of all, it looks like interacting with God daily. Interacting with God daily through His Word and through prayer. Do you understand 
that God's Word is a living book. It's a story of enduring suffering. Think of it. Abraham not sticking around in his homeland, but leaving. Going to a land he did not know. Joseph enduring the rejection of his brothers and injustice in Egypt. Ruth leaving her family and adopting her widowed mother-in-law. Not necessarily the thing she might have chosen to do. Esther risking her life to save her people. Job losing everything and facing the scorn of even his best friends. David losing two of his sons and his family dysfunction even because of his own sin. The disciples losing their great leader, Jesus Christ, and facing death at every turn. God's Word is a living book. It is a living story. And when we spend time with it on a daily basis, we understand that we are choosing this road that God has called us to, the road of personal suffering, the road of our choice of suffering through discipleship. Another way that we choose suffering is being a part of transparent community. Here at Grace Point, you call it body life groups. When you choose to be a part of a group with other people, and you choose to live your life in front of them in transparent community, when you choose to have an authentic walk and to allow other people to ask the difficult questions into your life, when you don't view church as Sunday morning coming and worshiping words on a screen in the back of someone's head, then you understand that you're living within an authentic community. And when you choose that as opposed to choosing staying at home, then you are choosing an understanding of who Christ is and how He wants you to live out this walk. You're choosing suffering through accountability, through fasting, through solitude. God is calling us to a life of choosing things that we might not often choose so that we can live this life of hope. Choosing joy in the midst of difficulty instead of sorrow. And the final thing, serving God through our abilities and passions. What we do at Northwood is probably similar to what you do here at Grace Point. But we ask the question of our church. What if the church were the missionary? What if instead of just missionaries on the field, whom we still need, but what if the church saw themselves as the missionary? And whatever your job is, whether you're a plumber, a home builder, whether you're a teacher, a pastor, whether you're a salesman or a computer person, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever you are, what if you used your gifts and abilities and passions to literally reach and touch the world? If you choose to do that, then you are choosing a road of personal choice of suffering. You see, we go through suffering maybe for our faith. We go through suffering because of circumstances and things that happen in our lives. But in the United States, if we're going to understand hope, a living hope that Paul is talking about, it means that we choose to discipline ourselves. There's a passage in Scripture that says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. 
so that I might be used for God. Have you ever used it, looked at that word buffet and how it's spelled? B-U-F-F-E-T. Also, the word buffet. The American church looks at that passage and says, I buffet my body. It's about me. What Paul said was, I buffet my body. I discipline it. I go and I choose personal suffering, personal limitations, personal growth. I go through difficulties and I endure them because I know Christ lives in me. The living hope. So what does it mean for you and I in 2009? It means hope. Hope. Not just hope in heaven. It might be easier for you to check out today. It might be easier for you to say, it's going to be, it'd be easier for me just to go into heaven. But what God calls us to is to a living and eternal hope. To live it out in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of personal challenge, in the midst of our own personal choosing. To choose a difficult walk so that we might experience hope. Would you bow with me this morning? I don't know where you're at. I don't know where this message hits you this morning. And as Jared comes and plays, I want you to understand that for some of you, you know what it's like to go through personal suffering. You have your own story of what it's been like for you this year. I see lots of young people in in the congregation this morning. You, like me, may not understand what it really would mean to go through personal difficulty. But still, you have the opportunity to choose to be a disciple of Christ. To choose spending time in His Word on a daily basis. To choose an authentic community. And to choose to walk this walk in Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I come to You and I thank You for Grace Point Church. I thank You that they are a place where Your name is glorified. Father, I pray for every person that's here this morning that they might know and hear that You are a God of hope. But not just a hope in heaven, but a living hope of how we live as partners with You in Your kingdom. Father, may we live 2009 with an understanding that we are willing to give our lives for You. But a dead sacrifice does nothing for you. We choose a living sacrifice daily, Lord. In Jesus' name.